Well, we are continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel of John. I've titled the whole series, The Message Became Flesh. And uh, you might be relieved, I don't know, that we've finally reached the end of chapter 6. 71 verses. Uh, so I, I'm, I hope you're grateful that I didn't try to preach the whole chapter in one sermon. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we are finally kind of wrapping this up. And, and I guess hopefully that gives you a sense that this chapter is a meaty chapter. There, there's a whole lot going on here that Jesus is trying to communicate to us. And John is intent not only to tell us of the miraculous things that Jesus did. All four Gospels tell us about the multiplication of the bread and the fish. But John is very intent that we hear what Jesus had to say about that miracle. How he interpreted it for us. What, what meaning we're supposed to take home from what he did there. And that's what this whole long chapter is about. It's a long rambling conversation between Jesus and the crowds about the significance of that miracle and what it is he's trying to tell us about himself. As we reach these final verses, um, it, it strikes me that we live in a culture that loves to take offense. Uh, you may have noticed this, that people uh, seem to be offended about just about anything we have to say. And uh, we find ourselves trying to navigate the current consensus of what constitutes the appropriate language and way to communicate with each other and terms to use and not use and how to say things and how to address one another. And even if we manage to stay on top of all this and stay current with the latest conventions, that doesn't, we're, we're still not out of the woods because the moment you tell somebody something they don't want to hear, uh, it seems like in our culture we have equated that with uh, abuse even aggression. Uh, if you tell me something I don't want to hear, if you, God forbid, speak a word of correction to me and say, I'm sorry, but that's wrong, or I'm sorry, that's not what you should be doing. We, we, we live in a culture that wants to say that that is aggression, that is uh, abuse. And I wonder if we have pondered the outcome of our delight in taking offense. Is it really, in the long run, a good thing for us to kind of nurture and pamper a self-centered approach to life where we expect the universe at large to accommodate our preferences at every possible turn? Does that make us better people? Is this... Uh, idea of demanding affirmation completely regardless of truth or virtue? Does that make us tend to move in a better direction as people? Well, I notice in today's passage, and kind of the one leading up to it last week, that Jesus deliberately offends us. I don't think it's accidental. And we have to decide what we're going to do with the offense. I've titled today's message, Jesus Gets Rude. We're in John chapter 6, verses 60 through 70. So let's read verse 60. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a harsh message. 
Who can listen to it? Of course, this makes no sense unless we know what Jesus just said that they're taking offense at. And that is from the previous chapter where Jesus is interpreting that miracle of miraculous provision of food in the multiplication of the fish and the loaves. And Jesus is trying to get them to understand it isn't just the kind of food you eat every day. That's not what I came to give you. I came to give you something much deeper than that, much more important. You have needs as a human being that go far beyond and run far deeper than your need to eat and drink. And Jesus tells them, I am what you need. And he, he says, the, the, the bread that I am going to give for uh, the cosmos, for the life of the world, the cosmos, is my flesh. And then people start grumbling. They don't quite like that. Jesus, man, you seem really full of yourself. And I think they think they're being cute when they say, well, what do you mean? You, you expect us to eat your flesh, Jesus? And Jesus doesn't back down from that. He says, yes. That is exactly what I'm saying. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will never see life. And I sense the frustration in Jesus. Stop throwing up your uh, stupid arguments and your insistence on misunderstanding and being deliberately obtuse and hear what I'm trying to tell you. You need me. Whether you want to or not, you need me. Desperately, more than you need food and water. You need me. And that is what people are taking offense at. This is a harsh message. Jesus, what are you saying? That you're the only thing that matters here? I thought I was the thing that mattered. I thought what I think was the only thing that mattered here. I thought my preferences, my accomplishments, my goals in life, all that I have constructed throughout my years of living, that was the only important thing. And you're telling me that that's nothing? That the only thing that means anything is you? Well, that is a harsh message. Who can bear to listen to that kind of thing? And they take offense. Let's keep reading. But Jesus, verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples are grumbling about this, said to them, This offends you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one that makes things live. The flesh does not benefit at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Jesus says, really? This offends you? Did I hurt your feelings by telling you the truth? What are you going to do when you see me at the right hand of the Father and you stand before me as I raise the living and the dead to give answer to their creator for what they have done with the gift of life? Are you going to be offended then too? And some of his disciples listening to him right then will witness him after his death and resurrection ascending to the right hand of the Father. And what Jesus is saying is, man, this is the way the universe is set up. 
You can get offended all you want, but this is the way it is. What use does our taking offense do us? It is what it is. It's like getting offended at gravity. I'm offended that when I step off a cliff, I fall. It's nonsense. This is the way it is. It offends you? Really? It offends you that even though you are nothing and you have nothing to give and nothing to offer, even though anything you have of any worth is something that I gave you, it offends you that I said, I'm going to give you eternal life anyway? You find that offensive? And Jesus says, figure this out. Where do you think life comes from? Why do you think you even exist? The Spirit is the one that makes things live. And that's the way it's described. The whole creation account, God formed man from the dust of the earth. And he was nothing until God breathed life into him. And he became a living soul. I don't live in and of myself. I live because God has imbued me with life. God's the only one who gives life. The flesh is no benefit at all. And I think Jesus is here preceding the Apostle Paul in his use of this dichotomy, these two opposite poles, spirit and flesh. Paul uses it throughout his letters. And for Paul, spirit is what God brings to the table. Flesh is what everything else in all the universe brings to the table. And John, and, and Paul, I'm sorry, in his letters, makes the very same point that Jesus is making here. This is the only side that has anything to contribute. The flesh brings nothing to the table. There's God and there's everything else and everything else minus God is worthless. It can contribute nothing. Think about it. We have been observing the natural universe for thousands of years. People have written stuff down so each new generation can kind of build on what the previous generation discovered and we're, we're accumulating some knowledge about the universe. And if you ask scientists today who have devoted their lives to studying the cosmos, they will tell you this is the inevitable playing out of the universe. Things will eventually keep separating out. Things that are right now burning like suns and things like that will eventually consume all their energy and will go cold and all life will disappear. Entropy is uh, the inevitable reality of the created order. Now the only way anything can change that is if somebody outside creation with the power to do so steps in and says, I don't think so. That's what Jesus is saying God is doing in him. He has come to infuse the cosmos, not with entropy and death, but with life. And he's going to do this at the cross. The words I have spoken to you are spirit. They are the words of the very God who breathed life into you. And they are life. 
I have a question from these opening verses. God in Jesus is offering us, despite having nothing to offer in return, life abundant and eternal. The only way to obtain it, though, is to place our trust, our faith, in Jesus alone and nothing else. Why do you think so many find this an insurmountable obstacle? Let's keep reading verse 64. But there are from you some who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning who were those who did not believe and who it was who handed him over. And he was saying, this is why I have told you that no one can come to me unless it has been given to him by the Father. Jesus uh, up front says, I know there are some of you who don't believe. He wasn't fooled by people just showing up and giving the appearance of interest or piety. He knew full well, and and John inserts this parenthetical. Jesus knew from the beginning not only who believed and who didn't. He knew from the very beginning that Judas was going to betray him. That he was going to hand him over to people to have him killed. He wasn't surprised. He knew it all along. He says, this is why I've told you. That no one can come to me unless it has been given to him by the Father. And this is, and perhaps he he keeps pushing the offensiveness of this message. You know what? Believing in me is the only hope you have. But you know what? Even, Even to believe in me is something you couldn't do unless I asked. Unless I invited you, you don't even have within yourself the desire or the ability to want to turn from sin and death and find life. That's how bad off you are. Unless the Father gives you the gift of drawing you to me, you can never know life. Do you understand how desperately in need we are before God? It isn't that some of us are going to work really hard and find out the truth about God and discover the secrets that are necessary to unlock life eternal and that is how we will get in. None of us has anything we can bring to the table to make this happen. Unless the Father invites us into this, it it will not happen at all. In fact, Jesus is saying that his invitation is the Father's invitation. When we come to the feet of Jesus, we have come to the throne of God Almighty. This is something his Jewish listeners needed to understand because I'm sure right at this moment, and as we keep reading, it's evident that this is what's going through the minds of many. You know what? We were doing just fine before you showed up, Jesus. We had the law of Moses. We had our synagogues. We were memorizing the traditions of the rabbis and scripture, and we had it all down. We've got it all figured out. We have everything we need to get along with God the Father. You don't have to come in and help us out. We've got it worked out. And Jesus is saying, you know what the Father is trying to call you to? It's not Moses. It's me. You know what the Father has given you? It's not the law of Moses. It's me. 
So this idea, you know, I don't like Jesus. I'll keep God, but eh, not so much Jesus. That can't happen because there are not two gods involved here. There's not God and then Jesus. There's God who became Jesus. They're not two separate people. And we can't take Jesus and leave God. We can't take God and leave Jesus. And the Father is extending to us the invitation to life eternal when he calls us to faith in Jesus. And when God does that work in your heart and you sense that stirring, don't despise it. Don't dismiss it. Don't say, I'll come back to this later in life when I'm bored. If God is inviting you to life now, take him up on it. Because you don't have within yourself what you need to find life. I have a question from these verses. Jesus said, we can't come to him unless we are gifted with the chance by God the Father. Why is it important for us to understand that we can't have Jesus without God the Father and vice versa? Let's keep reading verse 66. From then on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, don't you want to go also? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom will we go? You have words of life eternal and we have believed and have known that you are God's holy one this marks a turning point in John's gospel and and perhaps that's why it's such a long chapter because when Jesus gets down to the nuts and bolts of it and explains clearly to the people this is what God is up to a whole lot of people said I'm not interested A lot of people that had been drawn to the idea of the Messiah and the expectations they had of political uh, deliverance and economic well-being and all the kinds of things they had associated with the arrival of the Messiah when they realized Jesus is talking about something different than that. They said, no thanks, we'll just go back to what we were up to before. They turned back. They returned to the life they were living before and they no longer walked with him. This is what Jesus invites us on. He invites us on a journey. If you're going to believe in Jesus, you're going to follow him. You're going to walk with him. So Jesus turns to the twelve. And notice how Jesus isn't uh, trying to pamper anybody here. He says, Don't you guys want to leave too? Aren't you guys offended too? I think John recorded this for us in Scripture because we need to hear that from him. Are we going to take offense? Peter gives the right answer for once. Uh, A lot of times Peter gave the wrong answer, but this time he gets it absolutely right. Lord, and I think here he's not just saying sir. I think he's recognizing all that Jesus has been telling them in this whole chapter. That he is the great I am. That he is God come to them. Lord, as in God, to whom will we go? Where are we going to turn? 
You have words of life eternal. We have believed and we know that you are God's holy one, the one set apart by God to accomplish all the promises and aspirations of all the holy scriptures. God has for 1,500 years been communicating with Israel and telling them he's doing something magnificent that will bring life to the whole creation and will restore us from enmity and war and hatred and sin and death and every wicked and evil and vile thing. And there is this one figure who is going to be priest and king, judge and shepherd and giver of life who will do it all. And Simon Peter says, Jesus, we know that's who you are. You are the linchpin. You are the cornerstone. You are the one that brings it all together. So if everything God Almighty is up to centers on you, Where are we going to go? There's nowhere else to go. I hope in your walk, if you're a Christian, in your walk with Christ, you've come to one of these moments where the walk gets hard and difficult and you're discouraged and you you feel like you're completely at your wit's end and there seems to be no relief in sight and you want to just throw it all away and say I'm done with this following Jesus is too hard and you start considering options and you think well I could no that wouldn't work well maybe maybe no Who's going to give me life? Who's going to hold me in the palm of his hand and never let go? Whose love is actually stronger than death? Who? Tell me. There's nowhere else to go. There is no life anywhere else. There may be the illusion of it, but think Think long term. Think down the road. Yeah, I do this. Oh, that's fun for this amount of time. But then I get old and die. Hmm. Maybe that wasn't the answer I was thinking. Who can we turn to? You have words of life eternal. Peter got it right. When given the chance to walk away, Peter told Jesus there was nowhere else to go. What did he mean by this? I think if I had been writing this gospel, I might have stopped the story there. But John has this tendency of adding a little sour note at the end of these uh, stories. Verses 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is the slanderer? One of you is the devil? But he was talking about Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. For this one, one of the twelve, was about to hand him over. I think John is intent in this whole accounting of this event to kind of confront us with the importance of a genuine response of faith to Christ. 
and he reminds us yet again, he's already kind of said it in a parenthetical statement earlier, but he reminds us yet again that Jesus knew from the very beginning who was really his and who wasn't. Even among the 12 most intimate of his disciples, Jesus knew one of them was not a disciple. One of them was an imposter. He was a fraud. He was among their number, but he was actually in league with the enemy of God, not surrendered to God. And his plan uh, will ultimately culminate in handing Jesus over to death. Of course, God being who he is, he accounted for all of that and worked his great redemption plan taking that into account. That's kind of the way things work with God, when you know everything and can do everything. It's really hard to frustrate his plans. But Jesus knew. So it shouldn't surprise us if it happened with Jesus that throughout the rest of history we're going to continue encountering this reality of people that move among those who have faith and who apparently are part of that group but who never really bought in. And we can go through the external motions of a life of faith and fool everybody around us. We might even try to deceive ourselves about it but nobody deceives God. And I think ending this story this way is John's way of telling us, take a moment to look inside and ponder for a moment. Are you playing games with Jesus? If you are, you're the one that's going to lose. Nobody makes a mockery of God. And what Jesus is demanding of us, and the reason he's offensive about it and in our face about it, he is demanding absolute recognition that we have nothing and he is everything. And unless we're willing to accept that reality, Jesus can't save us, he can't give us life, he can't gift us with what we don't have. As long as we think we've got it covered without him, he can't fill that hole. I have one final question. Judas, one of the 12 hand-picked disciples of Jesus, ultimately betrayed him. Jesus knew this all along. How is this a word of warning to each of us individually as we approach Christ? You may be offended by what Jesus says in today's passage. If you are, I think you heard him right. I think he intended to offend us. The reality of our existence, the simple truth of our existence is not flattering. We are nothing. We can accomplish nothing. We are worth nothing in and of ourselves. All we are is a bunch of molecules that will eventually disperse. That's all we can contribute. Any significance, any worth must be given to us by God. Any true life must come from God. That's offensive. It hurts our pride. 
We want to think we've accomplished so much. We've figured so much out. We have got a, a handle on it all. And to admit that we don't is hard for us. But if you can get over yourself for just a minute and admit the truth, there's actually tremendous, tremendously, almost impossibly good news. Because what Jesus is telling us is that, yes, God knows the truth. We have nothing. We offer him nothing. We have nothing he needs. All we have is need. But God doesn't care. Because he's got enough for all of us. And he's generous and eager to share life with us. God wants to pour into us every single good thing that is in his arsenal. He wants to share the fullness of who he is with us. Jesus described it this way. When we believe in him, we come to abide in him and he comes to abide in us. We give ourselves to him. He gives himself to us. You know who wins in that exchange? You do. I do. We're not doing God some grand favor. So let me invite you to put your trust not in yourself, not in anything else, but to put your trust in Jesus alone. If you do this, what he is offering you is life abundant and eternal. Get past the offense and grab hold of the gift. Live in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being so generous. Thank you that even though we bring nothing to the table, there's nothing to commend us to you. There's no reason you should love us. Despite all of that, you love us. Ridiculously, Lord. I mean, to, to the point of dying on a cross to make possible the gift of life eternal. Restoration from the power of sin that we ourselves chose. Thank you for your grace. And Lord, help us to get past our pride and to come to... The, the joy that there is in utter dependence on you. Help us to keep our eyes not anywhere else, to our trust, our hope, nowhere else but in you. You are life, Jesus. Thank you for giving yourself to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.